0: Hello, everyone. This is Food Talks executive producer Rob Perra. On today's episode, Managing Director of Patagonia Provisions, Brigitte Cameron, talks about Patagonia's recent film, Artificial. Cameron also shares how Patagonia's partnerships are working to create a fair workplace and use regenerative methods to restore the environment. Danny also speaks with Kurt Beardsley, a co-founder and executive director of the Wild Fish Conservancy. They discuss the recent executive order that allows for large-scale fish farming and how this order could affect wild fish populations, human health, local fishermen, and coastal economies. Enjoy the show.
1: So for me, COVID, I've learned a lot during the pandemic. I've I've had to change up my, my cooking skills. I've had to try new companies and new products um uh one of them you know I, I because of food tank i often get introduced to new products because of the summits that we have uh which bring a lot of of, of different kinds of, of folks together farmers business leaders policymakers and others and um Patagonia Provisions has always been sort of uh, very generous with their products that w- with Food Tank. And one of the things that I had the chance to try last year that I've kept trying is their, their dried soup mixes because I feel like they're a real sort of meal starter. Like I can add a lot of things to them. I can, you know, um, be, be creative. And that has sort of saved me during this time. And I think these, these, these kinds of products, you know, that aren't fresh but still really nutrient-dense – that are delicious, that don't take up a lot of room in your pantry. These are kinds. These are the kinds of things that are going to be the foods of the future. They're not ultra processed. They're full of you know uh, regeneratively grown ingredients, usually are, or organic or sustainably grown. Um, they provide a lot of sort of comfort to me. I have to admit that I you know early on I was probably hoarding too much food but like that's something I feel good about hoarding it's easy I can make a very sort of delicious meal out of it without feeling too guilty so um yeah I, I think COVID has taught us all you know to sort of try new things whether whether we wanted to or not um and really experiment in the kitchen so I'm really glad that uh Uh, Birgit, uh, the managing director of Patagonia Provisions, and Kurt Birdsley, uh, the co-founder and executive director of of the Wild Fish Conservancy, could join me today. Thank you both so much for being here. The managing director of Patagonia Provisions, this was sort of her idea. They really uh, work to source nutrient-packed food uh, using uh, regenerative techniques. And Kurt, um, again, is the executive director of the Wild Fish Conservancy, and he's really led their efforts on, on Uh, many restoration uh, projects for wild salmon and wild fish populations in the Pacific Northwest and also regulations that would help protect these wild fish populations. Again, thank you both so much for being here. I think this will be a really interesting conversation.
2: Thanks, Danny. It's really great to be here. It's a pleasure.
3: Yes. Thank you.
1: So, Yeah, of course. No, so, Brigitte, why did Patagonia decide to start uh, a food company? You're so, you know, the company itself is so well known for doing all these outdoor things and, you know, having, you know, great jackets. My husband has the best Patagonia jacket that I sometimes steal from him. Why have a food company involved in this?
2: Yeah, that's a question we get all the time, <laughs> uh, but I think if you really look at Patagonia as as more of an environmental company, you know, mm-hmm. overarching, um, we, we really, you know, part of our, actually our new mission statement is to be in business to save our home planet. Um, that That's the new mission statement that Yvonne Chouinard changed Um Uh, last year, uh, and and it really focuses the whole business on examining supply chain and all sorts of different types of business. So apparel is one. Food is another. It could be in waste. It could be in water. It could be in all sorts of different areas. And and um, because we're somewhat of an activist company, I think it also um, somewhat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it 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 serves us well to be looking into all these different areas. The way we live our lives, the way we create businesses, um, we we like to take a good look at how these are all done and are they really in consider in consideration of people and planet, um, the way we do things. And so provisions, um, was, you know, sort of born out of this concept of, of doing good for people and planet, And also because, you know, when you think of, um, Patagonia, um, you know, clothing, we have touched agriculture for many years, Mm -hmm. right. Through, through, uh, wool, cotton, hemp, all these things. And what we learned along the way was that, um, agriculture as it relates to food, um, you know, is one of the biggest contributors to all the climate issues we're having now. Absolutely. So we couldn't stay away. And we said, let's do this. And so the task given to me by Elon Shenard and Rosemar Cario at the time was what would a food company look like for Patagonia based on, you know, our ethos and what we stand for. And so I built out what we know as Patagonia Provisions Today, which has about 36 the forty new SKUs of, of products, all ranging from fish to to uh, buffalo to vegetables and all sorts of things uh, that you mentioned. And um, and then now we're opening up a marketplace, bringing in other like-minded thinkers, because the idea of we're in business to save our home planet can't just come from us. It needs to include all these other people moving in the same direction. And as Yvonne says in our, our film, Unbroken Ground, you know, all these people moving in the same direction, you can't believe what we can accomplish. And right. I think that's right. It's very powerful. And and every time I say that line, I get chills myself. And, <laughs>
1: right. and so here we are. Sure.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah
1: that's great and and I, I i think your point about agriculture contributing to you know what is our our greatest threat uh, you know in addition to covid and that's climate change is is very powerful it's also a source of so much of, of the solutions for mitigating and adapting to and even reversing climate change and i think that's what's so exciting is that a company that you know started off with a, a um, an environmental and and conservation ethos is now moving into this sort of solution-oriented work. And, and you know, a, a lot of companies are sort of trying to go backward. Companies that weren't, weren't you know, didn't start off with the sustainability in mind are now trying to integrate it. And I think it's much harder for them to do that. If you sort of start off doing the right thing, then it's easier.
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a really good point. I think the way of the future is to really build businesses that solve problems and starting from that seed, which is what this does. And so, you know, because provisions is about rethinking our food systems and looking deep into supply chain, um, the way that we're producing our food and how that affects health and the planet, um, then we move to, okay, well, then everything we make has to have a really deep reason for being. So our buffalo, for instance, is about conserving and preserving the Great Plains, which are a really important ecosystem, Um, making sure that we have bison on the land, um, making sure that ecosystem, that prairie is intact. Our vegetables and fruits are all grown with regenerative organic um, agriculture, which helps draw down carbon um, and and. Uh, really make sure that we have more efficiency around water usage and mm-hmm. higher nutrients in the, the resulting crop. Um, and then the, the salmon um, and our seafood is really about regenerating our oceans and allowing wild populations um, like uh, salmon or other, other fish to rebound, um, mm-hmm. because ultimately nature will do that. If we understand the ecosystems that um produce our food, right, whether it's soil on the land or whether it's the ocean or prairie, then we can actually work with that and we will have an abundant supply of food in the future. The problems start to arise when we think that we need to re-engineer everything right, and do right. it in a different way. And so now with all the science that we know, um, and that's why Kurt's on this call as well, Working with scientists, working with people who have been studying these kinds of things for so long, we now know more than we ever did. And, And so much so that we can really pivot around the way we make things rather than defaulting to, well, this is the way it's done, so this is the way we do it.
1: Right. Absolutely. And I want to make sure, Kurt, that we bring you into this conversation. Why is the work of the Wild Fish Conservancy so important? I mean, you're coming up with criteria, like I mentioned before. You're working on regulations and you're working to really what what uh, Brigitte described is is help, you know, wild fish populations, including salmon, rebound why do they like can you explain to our our listeners sort of what has happened you know to our our wild salmon why and why they need to rebound in the first place?
3: Well, I mean they need to rebound because it is a giant part of our cultural and heritage but uh...
1: well what happened i I guess I'm asking what happened to force them to be you know they're we're in this position now that the the salmon populations need to rebound because they've been so depleted or so you know they get disease,
3: et cetera. Simply speaking, um, our management of salmon has not been reflective of what the scientific literature is telling us. Mm. And we have to use science as our compass and then develop policies that we use as a rudder to make us go to that target. Right. We're not doing that at all. Much of, what we, much of what we've been doing for over 30 years is looking at what are our policies and how close to policy is science? And the closer we can get those, the closer we are to sustainability. At least the best way we can, uh, we can be sustainable. But when we are actually going just opposed in our management to what the scientific literature is saying, we'll, we'll end up with where we are now is in a giant yeah. crisis. And that's why I really appreciate Patagonia. Or really wanting to know what the science is saying and to follow it. And uh, we consult with them uh, in our scientists for that particular reason. But that is the, the answer is really having companies that it, 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 that it makes economic sense to do the right thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: That's um, t- to me, that is just so exciting because it's quite often the opposite. And, uh,
0: Absolutely. It's,
3: it's been a, anyway, it's been a joy. And it's also just been exactly write down what we do as a science-based conservation organization.
1: Incredible. I love that phrase science as our compass. I think that that sort of demonstrates, you know, where, you know, where we're not at right now in, in the United States in particular, that we're not using science on our, as our compass on so many things, whether we're talking about food or health, Um, And those two issues are definitely, uh, you know, they affect each other. I'm wondering, Kurt, if you can talk about how the pandemic itself has affected, um, you know, the fishers uh, that that are, you know, uh, working to protect, you know, working both to um, harvest and protect wild salmon populations.
3: Wow. Um, Well, as everybody knows, it's 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 pretty much been across the board, um, how it's, it's affected. Well, from our perspective, we do a lot of field research Mm -hmm. and, um, scientific data is what you, is what drives, um, what you should be doing. You have Mm -hmm. to put that into, you know, and publish literature on what is the science telling us. And if we're not out there monitoring, we're, we are not going to be using the best information to help guide us so from a from a scientific perspective that's a real problem but from an individual perspective on fishermen many of these fishing communities are very small and mm-hmm. um, if in fact they end up getting an infection uh, within that community it could be devastating and they're there many of them are not close to major um. Right health facilities. So it, they're being extremely cautious and rightfully so, but it is, it is taking a burden on fishermen. Um, it's, it will be at least this year, um, they will, they will suffer from not, not being able to fish. And then also their markets, um, many of their markets have been, um, eliminated Absolutely. or, uh, at least reduced. So it's, it's a hard time for everyone, uh, including fishermen and scientists. Um, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. We just need, again, like with the COVID, follow the science. Great. Right, <laughs> right. Not uh, what the politicians are saying, but what are the scientists saying? And that'll probably get us out of this mess.
1: Kurt, I'm going to have that tattooed on my arm. Science is our compass because I think we need to, everyone needs to be following that more than ever. Birgit, uh, you know has how how has covid disrupted Panagodeia Provisions supply chain are you still able to work you know with the fishers that that Kurt ha, you know uh, also works to help and 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 get them the information that they need what what how, what kind of, of challenges have you faced
2: yeah it i mean it's extremely um complicated, uh, you know, just for everything from delivery of food. We certainly, because people are, are really focusing on food right now and wellness, there's been, as we all know, just huge demands for Um, shopping for food Um, and in particular proteins and animal proteins and, and salmon, you know, is, uh, and and fish are really high on the list for people. And as we've all seen going into the grocery store, forget about it. You can barely get anything. Um, So online sales are going really well for us. On the other hand, you know, we're having to make sure that our supply chain is intact. We need to buy ahead um, for ingredients, um, and and you know we're yet to which we have with our tin fish. So we we luckily were able to really kind of see what the um, the surge was going to be like, and and. Um, Uh, Make sure we're manufacturing, you know, to that number that we're guessing is is going to be required this year um, from, for instance, for our mussels or for our mackerel. Um, But, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the fishers for the summer. Uh, up in Yucatat. Um, you know, with the salmon runs coming in, usually that's just a massive industry where people just crowd Alaska and the, the areas where the salmon are coming back, um, and and it's yet to be seen how that's going to transpire. Um, we we're hoping that um, that there there's been. I mean, I've, there are a lot of protocols that are being put in place to keep people safe, but usually that's a very packed. Um, environment and uh, it's going to be um, affecting the number of of salmon people can can actually harvest from there. I don't know, Kurt. Yeah. Have you seen? Have you heard more about how they're going about that? We're we're oh, keeping close contact with our our the fisheries to make sure that we can actually get some of some of the uh, product this summer. <laughs>
3: Kurt, do you yeah, want boats, to comment? Boats, boats are small. Uh, okay. You know, you, it's hard to, to keep uh, social distancing on a boat. And also, uh, just like other processors, uh, the fish processing industry isn't designed to yeah. have people a long ways away from each other. So it's 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 putting stressors, um, you know, throughout the entire market and the entire industry.
1: Yeah, I've, we uh, have been talking to. Um, ocean and fish experts from both the nature conservancy and conservation international who are explaining that, that kind same sort of thing that, you know, it's hard to isolate people on fishing boats. You're out, you know, with, with a whole crew and, and you can't really keep a distance. And when you're processing this product, it's still people sort of shoulder to shoulder, just as Kurt mentioned, just like in the meat industry. And so being able to, to sort of, you know, ensure the health of, of both fishers and fish, you know, processing workers, these, these are incredible challenges for, for the industry right now. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: I think it is on business too to maybe take a look at that and make sure that we're not putting too much pressure on them, right? To be able to help where we can, um, you know, in order to you know provide protocols to participate, um, you know, in 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 ways that can help that industry, um, and and it's uh, it's just sort of you know something we just have to keep looking at on a daily basis
1: right, um, right. To, to monitor.
2: Really,
1: yeah, it's really moment to moment and day to day when you're looking at, at, at the food industry. Kurt, I, I want to go back to you for a minute. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, so much of, of the work that you do is based on on research and on the ground or, on, you know, on the water research. Um, and that's thwarted right now because of, of you know, um, being safe be, uh, around COVID. What are you most worried about in terms of making sure that that salmon, you know, are, are protected in the future? How much will this set us back? That's one of the things I worry about right now, how much agricultural research and, and fishing research isn't being done and, and what won't we learn that we, sh- we needed to learn this year?
3: That's really a good question. Again, uh, kind of what I was talking about earlier is you have to manage based on data and simple things like spawning surveys. You need to know how many fish came back to spawn and to make sure that you know how many fish are, um, you know, reproduced that last year. And if you don't have good data on spawning, for example, you may not set proper harvest uh, targets for the next year. So issues like that, it's going to make us need to be far more conservative in our management if we don't have really good data uh, than we had been in the past. Because again, with um, you're flying blind if you don't have um, solid and contemporary data.
2: Yeah. And, and to that end, meaning, you know, if you are harvesting, um, at the mouths of the rivers or, you know, close to the rivers of origin, you need to be able to have the data that tells you how many salmon are coming in, how many get to go up the river to spawn, how many you can actually harvest. So you can keep that ecosystem perpetuating in the way it needs to. Um, and, and so I think that's, That's what you're talking about, Kurt, too, right, to be able to um, understand those elements so that we just don't blindly gouge the ocean and extract, um, you know, too much. Right. On the flip side, if there are less people fishing um, this year because of the the reduction in, in people actually going up to Alaska, for instance, for the salmon, You know, maybe we have a a reverse thing happen and we see a little bit more rebound for next year, right? Um, Who knows, right? Uh, So that could be a positive thing that comes out of it if it's less,
3: right? Absolutely. Again, we just have to be, when we don't have good data, be really conservative. Um, And actually, and and it's not only just harvest, things like um, other stressors that you're measuring. You know, are there, are, well, like uh, Atlantic salmon net pens, for example, and viruses and parasites that may be harming them. Mm-hmm. If you're not monitoring other stressors that are anthropogenic that may be that may be harming our native fish, um, we don't know how to adjust those industries too. And there was there was just a big meeting uh, yesterday, a uh, big press release in British Columbia where five. Um, British Columbia chiefs were saying that the, that the uh, Atlantic salmon net pen industry was causing too much stress to their salmon, and they wanted them removed from the entire British Columbia coast. Um, that's that's a good move, and it was a, a you know well thought out by the industry or well thought out by the uh, uh, tribes, and I, uh, I commend them for it. But um,
2: that's that's a huge a huge thing, I think, a huge oh, win in a sense, um, because I think bringing in the idea of aquaculture in here, that's something that we have to be really careful about. Again, as you're saying, um, that if we have these these uh, fish farming situations in these wild waterways, um, we really run into a lot of um, problems with lower quality fish, with uh, parasites and, and antibiotics and medicines and things that are, you know, put into these systems. And then if there's an escapement like there have been in the past, then we run into polluting the wild species. Um, so, you know, these are all things that people have to monitor and, and be aware of. And it makes, um, it's a complicated game. Um, and um, something that, you know, to Kurt's point, we just have to have people out in the field doing the, this kind of work.
1: Um, thanks for bearing with me through my technical difficulties. I really appreciate you continuing the conversation. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the the science aspect, the research aspect of this, the being able to get food to consumers, you know, in a, in a timely, safe manner, these are all real challenges that you, you both are facing. What in terms of, uh, you know, looking ahead post-COVID, you know, one of the things that I've been very interested in um, during this time is that we're getting away from this sort of cult of freshness is what I like to call it. You know, there's been so much emphasis on, on getting fresh uh, food to consumers. And I do think that's important. And that's why CSAs and, and, you know, farmers markets have had such an uptick in, in um, sales over the last six months. But I also think that, you know, there are different ways to think about, um, the infrastructure in the food system and drying and preserving things and fermentation and canning things, which is so important to the, you know, the, the work of making sure that people can have access um, to, to healthy, affordable um, sources of fish protein. I think those are really exciting things. And so I'm wondering what you both think about that. I mean, I know canneries and, and tineries, I don't know if that's what we call them, uh, you know, are important for, for, uh, you know, fishers to be able to, to sell a product that, you know, is very perishable. And I know, you know, uh, Patagonia provisions, you, you, you sell a, a lot of your, your, um, your animal products that way. So I'm just, you know, what, what are your thoughts on like looking forward? Will we still, will we have more infrastructure around, around preserving these types of foods? I
2: I think it would be really, um, it's really important. I think to have that to your point, we've had this sort of resurgence of these shelf staple products, um, being, you know, really necessary. Um, on one hand, you need to support the farmers who only have uh, the ability to Excellent. sell fresh. Um, and so those CSAs are really important to keep signing up for to support the farmers. Um, and on the other hand, you need to make sure that you've got your cupboard filled with um, other other types of food that can sustain you um, because the supply chain might be disrupted. Again, we're going into the fall. Um, We may have some additional issues. So looking for um, shelf stable, stable plant proteins and then shelf stable, um, you know, meats and fish. And, and in our case, we have uh, the bison, uh, buffalo products um, and, uh, uh, and then we have the fish products. Uh, and so I think there's also a resurgence of tin fish coming in. Mm-hmm. So kind of revisiting other kinds of fish beyond um, tuna, right? Tuna is the right. default for everybody, right? right? And so what we talk about is eating, eating lower on the food chain, um, you know, taking pressure off these larger uh, fish like tuna that are just being completely depleted and, and including things like mussels and mackerel, um, and other kinds of species that can rebound like salmon if they're allowed to do that. Um, the that. other piece is uh, in the United States, we've lost a lot of our infrastructure. So I would love to see some of that canning industry come back, right. uh, I think, not only for jobs, uh, but also, you know, it was sort of something that was really important to our uh, economy Um and, you know, local and all of that, I think part of the problem going back to Kurt's world is that, you know, the oceans have started to warm up. Uh, we were dealing with overfishing in certain areas. And so then we saw um, sort of that infrastructure go away. But right. I think there's a way to if we allow for these um, environmental uh focuses and sciences to help us have the rebound of some of these species then we can start to bring back some of this infrastructure um, to our own country that will will actually um you know have a nice you know help us have a good complete circle um uh, on our own turf um so there's a lot of learning coming out of this and i think affordability as well um and that's where, you know, eating lower on the fish chain helps that as well, right? Mussels are less expensive. Um, uh, you know, uh, mackerel, these kinds of things that are abundant, um, you know, pink salmon. Pink mm-hmm. salmon is an abundant, delicious uh, species that was sort of overlooked and put into cat food for a long time. Right. And, yes. you know, but if it's treated well, it actually tastes incredible. So can we bring back these kinds of things? Of, uh, Uh, you know, fish into our cuisine, into our products.
1: Well, and it it seems so much like a win-win. You're creating more jobs. There's more opportunities. Um, On on Brigitte's point, uh, Kurt, what what other kinds of fish should we we be eating? We've talked about salmon. We've talked about mussels and mackerel. What else should folks be sort of out, you know, looking out for that's affordable, nutritious, you know, that they have access to?
3: Well, I I would say uh, diversity is the key. Uh, we we right now are just focusing on like salmon, you know, and tuna. It's uh, if, eating a little bit of a number of different species Ooh. and plants uh, is is it's um, so it's just part of a healthy diet. Period, and it's a part of a healthy way of managing our natural resources. Um, monocultures are not good. <laughs> you Mm -hmm. diversity is is absolutely the key and the issue that you were talking about earlier too about um um canning and issues of of that nature other ways of preserving your food a lot of these solutions um at least on our end of what we do um we find actually were things that we did in the past um we we Mm -hmm. never used to fish in the ocean we always fished in or near rivers of origin, and let the fish come to us. Now we find from the science points to that's really the best way to fish. Uh, you don't have mixed stock fisheries, and then also just preserving. Um, I mean, that's what that's what our grandparents did. Right. And it, it's a much uh, lower carbon footprint when you you use what's around you, mm-hmm. you. You use it fresh when you have it, and you preserve it for later. Uh, when, when it's not available, it's um, it really is quite ironic. Is the the path to the future is in the past uh, for many, many many things, and it's it's not just being old fashioned. It, it's it is a scientifically solid.
1: I love that. The path to to the future is through the past. And I think we're really learning that, you know, that's something throughout sort of the work that I've done, you know, looking to what farmers and fishers have done for generations and really learning from it and, and, you know, amplifying that work and and often combining it with new technologies and and new science. Those are the ways that we're going to, to make sure that the, the food system is, is you know, resilient for the future. And and I love that there are so many similarities between, you know, land-based agriculture and uh, you know, uh what we we are able to harvest from our marine resources because it, it really is about diversity. Monocultures just don't work. They they breed disease, they not just among you know animals or plants, but among humans. <laughs> you know, it's not good for us to just eat the same things over and over again. So these are really I, I love that combination. I think you know, most folks don't, I, you know, sort of put together those pieces that, you know, the land, how, how we treat the land and how we treat the sea, th- those are very similar things.
2: Yeah. And, and to that point, I think there's this that I've uh, kind of read about recently who framed that in a really great way. So Nathaniel Rich, who writes for the New York Times, and then also um, Charles Massey, who wrote a book called Call Call of the Reed Warbler, He's from Australia, Um they both sort of summarized it as you know we as humans are hardwired to live off of a natural environment but we are the only species that are destroying the very environment that supports us right to me that's so chilling and to me it also kind of tells us that we need to look at uh, our ecosystems as a whole to frame things differently for ourselves that if we work with nature you know with what the ocean tells us with what you know regeneration of the land means and understand these ecosystems better through science and learning from the deep past we can have an abundance of food in our future and 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 live on a healthy planet and and so that's a paradigm shift that that we need to sort of bring into our thinking And it's doable. We know this because it has now been proven through science um, and through looking at the past. So as 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 Kurt says, use science as our rudder and compass um, and then consider history, um, look back in order to go forward. And then the other things to consider are, you know, the, the stressors of climate change. So what is happening? What's, you know, how are the, the oceans being affected with warming? What storms are coming in that destroy crops? Making sure we can plant things that are planted in the right location to be able to weather certain things that are coming our way. And then finally review the techniques used to extract these natural resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's just a long way of saying we just Let's look at things a little bit differently and we can do it. And it circles back to what you were saying in the beginning about building businesses or pivoting an existing business uh, to be working on solutions. Um, That will, that will help us take care of food for the future and the next generations.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Kurt, I'm hoping you can comment on this as well. You know, if, if, we're going to make sure that, that fish populations thrive. How does that gel with making sure that fishers also thrive, that they can make a living off something that needs to be, sometimes to be left alone, right? It, you know, you need to give these these uh, these populations of marine resources a chance to to rebound, as we talked about before. What does that mean for fishers who depend on them, you know, like everyone else does for a paycheck?
3: Yeah, well there's many things we can do. And again, it is, it it is fixing um, our policies and management that is going to help us. And one of the big issues we're working on is, um, which I mentioned earlier, is um, historically we, well, for salmon species particularly, we, we waited for the salmon to come to us. And then uh, Europeans came and we had gas and diesel engines and we went out to sea. Uh, and we found that if we went to sea, we could get salmon all year long, but we were fishing mm-hmm. in a ocean. And if you, um, if you fish in the ocean, then you're also catching fish from everywhere. And you can't rebuild uh, a, a stream system or um, rebuild a, a particular population if it's being harvested um, unknowingly and out at right. sea. Right. And once once we let them come back to their rivers of origin and let local communities have greater control over their destiny,
0: right. that makes
3: all the difference in the world. Um, people will care so much more about protecting their habitats if they see that the work that they're doing actually has a benefit. Right. But if that benefit is extracted somewhere far away, out of sight and out of mind, it, it, it takes away that that sense that I can make a difference. Right. And they really can, but it, it is going to require some changes. Again, like moving the majority of our fisheries closer to shore or in in, in our rivers and fish with selective That's gears. So you can take the fish that are abundant and fish that may not be doing well, release them unharmed. Right. And many of those tools too uh, are ancient with just a few tweaks from contemporary Techniques, Um, we're finding that the absolute most sustainable products are tools are based on some very, very old techniques. And bringing those back is going to be a key part. And I really appreciate that Patagonia has also been really supportive of that effort.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. And I think, you know, these community led efforts where communities can see the the result that is really important to all of this communities feeling that they are a part of it because they are they're the ones preserving the fish populations. Before I ask the final question, I want to make sure that folks know how to get in touch uh, with both of you and, and get more information. They can go to Patagoniaprovisions.com. Again, that's Patagoniaprovisions.com. They can go to Wild Fish Conservancy. org. Again, wildfishconservancy.org. Both uh, websites will be available at foodtank.com. So my final question is who is inspiring you the most right now? It's been a really, you know, stressful (laughs) several months for for a lot of us, a lot of changes, a lot of revolutionary changes, things that I'm really excited about, but the pandemic has caused a lot of uncertainty. So I wonder, you know, Brigitte, who you look toward, you know, who's giving you some, some inspiration right now?
2: Uh, well, I have to say, uh, and I'm not saying it just because he's on this call, but I have to say, <laughs> Kurt Beardsley and his group because they're really uh, doing some incredible things about um, taking back these these places that can can really produce um, a beautiful future uh, right. by applying science and and others like. <clears throat> Uh, in our supply chain, like Wes Jackson, who's developed um, Pernza you know, in the Long Root. I love
1: Wes. Uh-huh, <laughs>
2: exactly. And Steve Jones at the Bread Lab. I mean, these are my heroes, um, because they are doing the great work that will pave the way for the future. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's what it is. I'm really looking to the people who are, are very, um, diligent about understanding, uh, our, our, our world and how we can navigate, um, it's essential to, to moving forward.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Kurt, how about you?
3: Well, I, I would absolutely go along with all of those and and also include just not because Birgit's here, but (laughs) <laughs> businesses, businesses like Patagonia, honestly, that um, that make a good living doing the right thing. That the more you have of that, and the more other industries see yes. that, actually, uh, you will have a uh, you'll have a con- constituency that is um, forever wanting your what you do if you're doing the right thing. Right. People are looking for trust in what they buy nowadays. And you can only get trust if you really are doing the right thing, and I mean the right thing uh, for the planet, because that affects that affects all of us. And I would say the other the other inspirations I have are, um, you know, scientists that are stepping up that are that have been quiet in the past that are now actually saying no. I actually I actually have to have a voice, and I have to say what we're doing is is wrong or this is the right way to do it is what we're really looking for and also um, many of the first nations and tribes are saying i you know i want my destiny back and that's um that's been very very inspiring and hopefully we can all work together to have a better future
1: what a wonderful point to end on. Thank you both so much for joining me. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg. And please join me on our next episode when I'll be talking to Rowan White of the Indigenous Seedkeeper Alliance. Thank you both so much. Please stay well.
0: Thank
2: Thanks, you. Danny. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.